This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Subaru Myla, the Medical Director of the Cardiovascular Catheterization Laboratories, and Dr. Joel H. Manchester Endowed Chair in Interventional Cardiology at the Jeffrey M. Carlton Heart Vascular Institute at Hogue Memorial Hospital Presbyterian in Newport Beach, California. Dr. Myla, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Absolutely, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful time to catch up on things. Fantastic. Well, before we dive into the uh, questions, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your background and your journey to where you're at today. Absolutely. I'm an Indian immigrant interventional cardiologist practicing in Newport Beach for the past 32 years. I'm trained in Maimonides Medical Center under Jacob Shani, who I think still walks on water for coronary and interventions. And I'm fortunate to be on the precipice for three exciting changes in the past three decades, the coronary angioplasty, carotid stent development, and now transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And in my role, I'm also an innovator and an entrepreneur. I have experience in a startup telehealth company, recently awarded patents in transcatheter aortic valve cerebral protection devices. And I have an executive track as well. 30% of my time is in administration. I'm trained in the American College of Physician Executives. And I hold a master's in medical management at USC in Southern California, period. And uh, I'm also uh, married to, happily, to my medical school sweetheart, who is a retired cardiac anesthesiologist. And I have two physician children starting out in their practice and fellowship. And I'm currently involved as the endowed chair at Hogue Memorial in doing research on Apple Watch and how we can detect a heart attack. Fantastic. Wow. You know, it sounds like you've had just an amazing career. And, you know, I'm wondering, first off, what's it like to be married to another physician who's in a similar specialty as yours? And how are we able to navigate that as well as raise two children who are also physicians? We fight in the morning and kiss and make up by dinner time. <laughs> um, it's, we're highly competitive, but Over the years, our relationship has evolved, matured, friends, husband and wife, and uh, we both have opposite viewpoints, although thankfully in the same political party. But uh, yeah, um, she's always giving me my second opinion, sometimes before I had a chance to say my own opinion. (laughs) So she knows the first and second for you. (laughs) That's right. Fantastic. And, you know, it's so interesting as well to hear that you've done some work um, with the Apple Watch and, you know, the innovative thing that they're doing um, to monitor heart health. Um, Is there anything you can talk about in terms of how you got into that work and, you know, what's really been rewarding for you? Of course. About 10 years ago, I co-founded a telehealth company where it is not just a FaceTime but actually get physical exam through uh, digital devices. One of the uh, scientists that I worked with managed to provide a universal analog to digital converter. And that box allowed me to 
take OEM products like the regular stethoscope that is inexpensive, when connected, allows the physicians on the other line to listen to the heart and lung sounds. We were ahead of the game. There was no market for an individual patient to buy these devices, and there's no insurance reimbursement. So we have done some uh, sponsorship-based clinical studies, but later we had to shelve it for the time being, uh, transform into a remote monitoring telehealth company for chronic disease management. And along the way, Apple Watch has made tremendous changes and the medical sensor development, that is the exciting future that is coming. The prediction for a Generation 8 Apple Watch in 2023 will have not just a pulse rate, heart rhythm, and pulse oximetry. You can measure the blood pressure. You can know the blood glucose and alcohol levels. And this is the promise. It's not just Apple Watch. There are many other sensor companies. There are plenty of research in San Diego and in China, Pacific Rim countries, on the sensor products that have become incredibly inexpensive and innovative. So we will see a lot of changes where the patient becomes the center and they acquire their own data. They own it, share it remotely, and we will have real-time values, not just one set of vital signs when they come to the office and then they don't get seen and the frequency of the visits are dictated by some third-party regulator. That's fascinating to hear and, you know, just so exciting to think about the potential for a lot of those technologies using the, the sensors and knowing what it means for health and, and prevention in the future. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So in looking at where we're at today, what are some of the biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology right now? Of course, the the biggest issue from a patient point of view is the access to care. There is such a widening disparity between the haves and the have-nots and the decimation of the middle class in this country. Uh, These narrow networks have really done significant damage to erode the patient-physician relationship. Patients get admitted with heart failure. They go home and they can't get their own physician in the narrow network because they're limited number, and they end up getting readmitted to be cared by other physicians who are not in the network. That is the problem. In the, when we measure quality outcomes at an institution level or an individual physician level with the short-term outcomes of that episode of care, it is missing the whole life cycle of the individual in the community. The social determinants of health is the first attempt that Medicare is doing, and which is commendable in gathering information and trying to come up with the way. That stands out as a major issue in cardiology. Besides moving on to an individual practice and physician, to me and many hundreds out there, the electronic health record and the regulatory burden of practice. I'll give one example. Prior authorization, these third-party companies contracted would scrutinize, have such a draconian control and a cookbook style pushing the practice guidelines without taking into account individual patient situation. And this is consuming so much time 
to the point that they hope you will stop betting for the patient and give up at some point because you just don't have the time, resources, and the wherewithal. And that is the burnout. The burnout is because I'm helpless to change this. This is too big a change. I don't have the autonomy. And the moral injury perpetrated when these prior authorizations take up all my time, and I feel guilty. Hospitals and insurance companies, however, have the deep pockets to hire uh, IT, coding, review experts, and they can meet the challenge when the EHR came and the regulations came. But the physicians lack that ability because we have no reimbursement or resources. That, to me, is a big individual physician-level concern that is growing in cardiology. And I might add, there is another third major issue in cardiology, and that is the ever-exploding technological devices, transcatheter valves, repairs, replacements, or the new biological biosimilar drugs. Both are very expensive. And the payment structure in the current insurance is lagging behind the science. So you have the dichotomy. FDA approves the product based on scientific study, and the CMS and insurance companies do not pay for it. And essentially, those who can afford will get the new device. Those who cannot afford will not get it. So we have two classes of medical care. And this will get worse when we have the AI chatbots populating the healthcare advice in the future. And who will be caring for the poor who don't understand how to navigate this? Those are my concerns. Those are some really great points, Dr. Myla, especially as you just mentioned, thinking about how, you know, access issues to care really should be at the forefront of any kind of innovative things that we're trying to do so that everyone will be able to, you know, benefit from some of these things, whether it's the new technologies in the field or the ability to use the AI bots or or understand how to use the technology to gain access to care. Now, I'm wondering, you know, given some of the things you talked through, especially the prior authorizations and um, how physicians are are working in the field today. How do you see heart care evolving in the next 18 months or so? So I think the pandemic really brought to the central stage the value of telehealth. We started a company 10 years ago, had this degree of attention and the payments work to present, we would have been way ahead in that game. Right now, I expect the telehealth to expand, increase the care, perhaps democratize to a degree of this healthcare disparity. But at the same time, I am concerned that we're setting up for failure. The current telehealth is essentially a glorified FaceTime. There is no sensor-based input of vital signs, physical exam, and the frequency of visit the nonverbal communication, which is vital when I see my patients in the office face-to-face, is missing. But by setting the expectations high, I'm concerned the quality won't match that expectation. This can cause the concern for abuse. There may be reduced payments to telehealth. It increases the risk of missing a vital diagnosis and potential malpractice risk in the Uh, near-term future. This lack of contact with the patient 
I think it increases the gap and threatens the physician-patient relationship. We already have many alternative sources of getting the first knowledge base. It could be the AI, the chatbot, or the minute clinic, or uh, healthcare extenders. And the challenge and the research is showing many of them are actually increasing the testing because of their limited range of expertise and practicing at the top of their license without the critical decision-making and living through failures and experiences of an MD, you try to compensate by doing more tests, ordering more MRIs, CAT scans, or giving unnecessary uh, narcotics or antibiotics, you are inviting a different mindset. You have antibiotic resistance. You run the risk of opioid crisis. These are some of the ramifications that we will be seeing in the near future. But on the more exciting side, I think this idea of same-day discharge and the ambulatory surgery model that CMS has proactively embraced starting January 1st of 2021 will accelerate that migration. You see, traditionally, hospitals lived by a bed, number of beds or bed days, et cetera, bed rest. Now we're beginning to see vast majority of the admissions are unnecessary or can be abbreviated. Imagine a future pandemic when the acute hospital no longer needs to accommodate so many elective admissions because they have an alternative venue of care. The acute hospitals can take care of the critically ill pandemic patients. Earlier on, you mentioned how the pandemic led to postponing necessary care, mental health service. 500,000 chemotherapy doses were gone without treatment. Just imagine what impact that would have if you have an alternative care practice. Two operating systems for the American healthcare. The really sick would go to the hospitals. Everything else is at an ASC model. That, I think, will accelerate. Uh, For example, California Title 22 is archaic. It needs to be revised to be in line with the rest of the states that have embraced an ambulatory model. The other more exciting thing on the lines of telehealth and remote monitoring I see is the focus on healthy lifestyle, fitness, coaching, risk factor identification and modification. I think there is a big healthy movement towards plant-based diets and the cardiovascular benefits So it's not just the hyping and promoting the next best gadget, the stent, but also that a healthy living will actually prevent you needing those high-tech devices. Those things are going to happen. Dr. Marla, I I think that's great insight. And I'm wondering, is there anything else today that's making you excited or, or nervous? Well, the pandemic is bringing an opportunity and a challenge. The most important that I'm thrilled to share is people are willing to examine and listen to the challenge and the proposed change. They're not stuck in a status quo defense. That dogma is changing. And that culture change, I think, is probably the most important thing I'm excited about. 
That's fantastic. And definitely is important thing is people really re-examine their health and, you know, relationship um, with themselves. Now, before we end our conversation here, I was wondering, could you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Of course. I, can I just add one thing that I'm concerned about, and I'm sure you're aware, is the cybersecurity and the tighter controls that it is bringing. And I think it's going to make the burnout more likely. You know, ransomware, so-called IT monitoring companies, they're not really effective. ProPublica just published a study. 75% of the time, these companies end up paying the ransom. And Moody just announced the data on Becker's saying that the insurance for cybersecurity is up by 35%. I don't know how cardiology practices can survive and because we would be next in this. Um, I just wanted to share that concern I have. I have two children. One is just starting practice as a palliative care geriatrician. And uh, my daughter is finishing internal medicine, and she will be going into oncology fellowship. And my advice to the emergency physicians is be infinitely curious, open to change. This is the best antidote to boredom and burnout. If you are curious about everything, you won't have time to be bored. My second advice, don't just focus on the clinical knowledge. Focus on process knowledge how and why things are happening around you, and can they be improved? If you break it down to individual steps, you will learn to appreciate how the team has evolved, what is the relative role and contribution from each person is. You will be a better team player. You will always point out problems in a solution-minded approach. This is really important. And my third advice, be innovative. Always look for customer pain points. That customer could be the patient, your colleague, your nurse, or anyone that you interact. If you understand how they interface with that work, you will know and find an opportunity to invite. In that regard, don't avoid difficult aspects. Embrace them because this solution will allow you to invent and expand and ultimately benefit the patient. Dr. Mailev, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really enlightening conversation, and I hope that we're able to connect again soon. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate it.